Over a hundred years ago, a Presbyterian pastor named John Williamson Nevin said that the incarnation is the key that unlocks all of God's works. It brings to light the true meaning of the universe. We just made it through the Christmas season where Christians take time to celebrate one of the most important things that we believe, that God became a man. But it's not often that we think about why that had to happen or what that means for us. So today we're talking with Zach Dewey. He's an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church a student ministry pastor in California, and he's been a good friend of mine for years. Zach and I talk about what the incarnation is, why it matters, and how it really is good news that the word became flesh. I'm Travis Lowe, and this is The Stone Table. Zach, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk with us and especially being all the way in the great state of California. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah. Um, hey, thanks for having me, Travis. I've been looking forward to it. So we've been friends for a couple of years and the way that we met is a little bit strange. And I feel like you probably remember it better than I do. I, I know some of the details, but you've got a better memory than I do. How, how is it that we <laughs> got to know one another again? Yeah. So through Facebook, you know, as any common millennial story must start, uh, <laughs> growing up in California and you in Florida, we of course didn't meet in person. And so through a mutual friend that we had through the music scene on Facebook, uh, he was asking about seminaries and where, where people would, uh, recommend him to go. And I saw a friend or somebody at the bottom of the, of the uh, thread commenting about reformed theological seminary in Orlando, how they went there. And that was funny to me because at the time I was going to reform theological seminary in Orlando and the, the student body is not massive. And so no. this person didn't look familiar to me. And so I reached out and then, I don't know, a few, maybe a year or so later, a few months later, uh, I was at the gospel coalition in Orlando. This is 2015. I'm in the giant bookstore, just looking around and lo and behold, I see this uh, platted man who looked familiar through Facebook. And so I decided to go up to him and I introduced myself and we became friends pretty quickly and became theology partners up until the current hour. <laughs> up until this very moment. Yeah. I, if I remember correctly, the, the way that this went down was that you walked up to me while I was at the bookstall and said, this is going to be really weird, but I know you from Facebook. And I actually didn't know who you were at first. And, and then as that I sounds exactly like something I would say just shamelessly, I looked at you and I was like, actually, I do know him from Facebook. And, and it turned out that we had, we'd actually been at some music festivals around the same time. And we had kind of been in the same areas, but had never actually talked yes. to each other. Yeah. Cornerstone 2011. I'm pretty That's sure we were up. both here. So in the years that we've known each other, you mentioned we've had a just great and running conversation about life and about theology and, a lot of the areas that we agree, a lot of the areas that we don't see eye to eye, but one of the things that we both are really passionate about, and I know this is something that you really care about, is this doctrine of the incarnation that we talk about in the yeah. Christmas season, which is really the big thing that Christians celebrate around Christmas. 
but I'm sure that you've got people who've been in church for however long and have heard that word mentioned, especially around Christmas, but don't really know what it means. So if somebody has heard the word incarnation, but isn't really sure what we mean by that, can you give like a basic explanation? What, what's the incarnation? Yeah, so you could start uh, with maybe looking at Spanish. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I had a carne asada taco. It's probably been too long. I need to have one probably every week, but carne asada meaning meat, carne, flesh. So the incarnation is Jesus or the second person of the Trinity stepping into human nature, taking on human nature, assuming human nature onto himself and becoming flesh and walking with us and entering into humanity. It's, it's in, in that sense, it's a pretty simple doctrine, God becoming human. But of course, right along, as soon as you say that, uh, a lot of other issues and complexities come into play there. God becoming human, does God transform and no longer is God? Does he uh, stop being God and become human? That's maybe one read of Philippians 2 or Jesus uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but taking the form of a servant, uh, humbled himself by, by becoming like a human, becoming like flesh. I'm, I'm probably, of course, quoting that wrong, but uh, you get what I'm saying. There can be a lot of confusion there. And so over the years, there's been lots of, lots of heresies that have cropped up in church history, uh, lots of different things, lots of different ways of, of explaining or understanding uh, the incarnation. So it's at once simple, but it actually is quite complicated. To, to say even that the, the word became flesh, which is what St. John says in his gospel. Yeah. John doesn't say how that happened. He yeah, just says that it did happen. And so that is really where people have gotten into trouble in church history with trying to explain what that means and doing yeah. so in a way that doesn't do justice to everything that the gospels say about the person of Jesus. Yeah, you, exactly. you mentioned that there's some, some heresies that have cropped up that I think the church has rightly rejected. What are some of the ways that we ought not to think about the incarnation? What are some of the mistakes that people tend to make? Yeah, so there's the mistake to basically see Jesus as only divine. You want to protect his divinity. And so uh, you sort of remove his humanity from him and don't let him be completely human. Or the opposite error, you don't want him to really be divine. There's no God but one. And so in affirming that, the, the unity of God, the singleness of God, you want to protect from God becoming multiple people. And so there have been some heresies that have essentially denied Jesus's deity. Um, and so, and then there's a lot of different variations in between there. It can be hard to pin down, but it, it's really important to look at all the gospel evidence and see what the gospels teach us, what really the whole scriptures teach us. Of course, the Old Testament tells us so much about Christ. We cannot understand Christ outside of the Old Testament as well. We need both Testaments to have a perfect picture of who Christ is. And there's a lot of evidence and data that needs to be worked in, which is what took the church so long really to, to hash out and what would be the orthodox statement on Jesus' Jesus's divinity and humanity and the hypostatic union uh, being 100% man and 100% God. And that really is codified, I, I would say, in something like the Chalcedonian Creed. Yeah, is that exactly. something you would agree with, that Chalcedon kind of sets the precedent yes. for what Chalcedon. we should think about when we think about the Incarnation? And then, of course, you know, you, you have the simpler creeds. You have, you have the Apostles' Creed, uh, which isn't really 
trying to explain or articulate fully the doctrine of the incarnation, though I think it does. And so does the Nicene Creed, which takes a little more time to defend uh, Jesus's divinity, but also affirming his humanity. But really, yes, it is the Chalcedonian Creed in 451, where Jesus's divinity and humanity are propounded in a way uh, that was set forth and established really for all time. One of the things that I like about the Chalcedonian Creed and the, the way that it helps us think about the incarnation is that it still doesn't try and explain all of the mechanics of it. It almost yeah. kind of sets up these guardrails and says, it's definitely not this, and it's definitely not this, and it is yeah. this. Yeah. But within these boundaries, feel free to have a discussion, which I think is really helpful. I don't know if you've considered that before. Yeah, it's sort of it's setting the fences around which we can play on the inside. And in that sense, I guess maybe it, it's a, a little bit uh, ap- apophatic. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Negative theology. Or it's, it's, yeah, it's, in, in, it's saying negative things. And it's denying that any of it's mixed or mingled. It's not like he's, there's a compromise on either one of his natures. He's both God and man. And if there's any way that you conceive of that, where you're compromising his humanity or his divinity, that's what the Chalcedonian Creed is really establishing. Uh, it's helping us to see that he is at one and the same time, God and man. But, but how that works, there's obviously a, a huge mystery there. It's a mystery that the church has always had to confess. And I would say it's essentially that it's the central mystery of the Christian gospel that God has become man. Hmm. It's one of those things that's interesting because we, we talk about it every year in hmm. Christmas. Yeah. But I don't know that even around Christmas, most Christians think about the incarnation. They think about the manger scene and they think about baby Jesus and yeah. the, the farm animals. But, but what's actually going on here, again, to go back to John's words, the word becoming flesh, it's not often that people give a lot of thought to that. So why do you think it is that, that we don't think about the incarnation, aside from the fact that obviously it's really mm-hmm. difficult to think about as we've yeah. just laid out? I think it's easy for for us, especially as Protestants now in the 21st century, when we think about the incarnation, we essentially just conceive of it often as the precondition for the atonement. And so it almost gets skipped over in its significance because if you were to ask a high school kid, say in my youth ministry, uh, why did Jesus become incarnate? They might just say so that he could die. The only reason... Jesus came in the flesh was that so he could die. And I think that there's a lot more significance to it than just that. Um, it's, not, it's not just a precondition for the atonement. And I think that's why it often uh, gets skipped over. Of course, there is all the complexity to it, which makes it a hard doctrine to understand at times. And so that can be something that makes it difficult and maybe, maybe makes it get shaded over or looked over in the church. It's always framed in terms of this is just the thing that had to happen. So Jesus could go to the cross, which yeah, is exactly not wrong by any means. So Christmas gets uh, not much attention in, com- like in comparison to good Friday, at least theologically. Now that's right. not true of the season. Christmas is the big season and good Friday is only one day, but I don't think Christmas is merely the uh, precondition for good Friday. And Jesus could have been, put to death right away. He was in a manger, which he was with other barn animals, presumably other sheep. You know, why didn't he just become the lamb of God and die right away? Why wasn't he just put to death and our sins paid for? No, he had to live 
And he had to not only be conceived and born, but he had to live as a man and experience human frailty and human pain and suffering in the way that we, we all do too. What is it about our condition as fallen people that makes that necessary? Like I know that the church fathers, I think of like Athanasius in particular, mm-hmm. has this whole book on why was the incarnation necessary in the first place? Yeah. What is it about us that doesn't just make the cross necessary, but, but makes what we celebrate in Christmas a necessity? So the classic patristic Christological dictum or saying is, and maybe I'm quoting this a little bit wrong, there's different translations of it, but what was not assumed is not healed or is not redeemed. Therefore, that Jesus or the second person of the Trinity had to assume full humanity, that includes our bodies, our minds, our wills, our affections, our hearts, and so on. He had to assume all of that in order to redeem that. Being in fallen human nature, we needed not just our guilt removed, which is the atonement, but we needed our corruption to be healed. Uh, we needed it to, to be fixed. We needed our depravity, the state of being human, to be lifted up to a new a new level and the new creation. So I, I think that's also where we tie in the resurrection. Jesus steps all the way down from heaven and divests himself of his divine privileges and comes down into human form all the way down to the center of our existence. And then he even dies in a death on the cross, as Philippians 2 emphatically points out, and he was raised again. And so you have him now being raised in a new resurrected body to a new status, you might say, a whole new way of existence, a new principle, a new plane of existence. And in so doing, in becoming united to us in the incarnation, which is huge, the incarnation is the way that God has united himself to our our human estate, has raised us up now to, to the new creation through his death and resurrection. One of the ways that I've tried to explain it, I'd be interested to get your take on this is when, when we think about something like, like germs. So when I worked at Chick-fil-A years ago, I was terrified of accidentally getting somebody sick because I didn't wash my hands while I was working with the raw chicken. And so (laughs) I would, I would like work at the, at the chicken table and get all of the raw chicken on my hands. And then I would go to wash my hands and I would wash my hands and turn the faucet off. And then I would think about the fact that the dirty hands that turned the faucet on probably contaminated the faucet. And even though I washed my hands when I turned the faucet off, my hands were contaminated again. So there's this idea of contamination and it it made me wash my hands a thousand times when I worked at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. But the interesting thing that happens in the Gospels is that whenever Jesus comes in contact with people who are sick or in a state of uncleanliness... Jesus isn't made unclean by coming into contact with them, but they're made clean by coming into contact with him. And so in the incarnation, the, the person of the son is yeah. in contact with our human nature. And in the same way that lepers are healed by contact with the incarnate son, our human nature is being raised up by contact with the son. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Exactly. So there's what I would say are soteriological implications you may need to define that word. What, what's soteriological? There is salvational, you could say, salvational implications. The, in, the incarnation is not just, again, it's not just a prerequisite for death. Uh, we often conceive of salvation as Jesus died for my sin. Well, yes, but he also became man for your sin. So that's why the Nicene Creed, very interestingly, in my opinion, says for us, 
men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was made man. Most translations of that put a period right there. Uh, my denomination, the CRCNA, the Christian Reformed Church, has a period there. And I, I'm pretty sure the Eastern Orthodox version of the creed has a period there. And it's, so in doing so, it highlights that the incarnation, for us and for our salvation, he was made man. That's a pretty massive point. Uh, the fullness of God has now become man. Um, and God has, has entered into our camp. I think uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of John 1, 14 is uh, the word took on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Uh, I think that's, that's awesome. a, it's an interesting rendering of, of John 1, 14, where he, um, the word became flesh and, and uh, dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. So God moved into the neighborhood. God moved into to where we are and he came to us. And so in doing that, yeah, he brings the fullness of divinity into human nature. And I think that raises human nature uh, and restores human nature. It restores and redeems our corruption. And so there's parts of salvation happening there that happen differently on the cross. The cross, I would say, is the removal of guilt and of the enmity between us and God. But there's also a organic redemption happening in the incarnation. And that's why in the Nunc Dimittis, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm pronouncing that correctly, the Song of Simeon, um, mm-hmm. which uh, a lot of churches use in their prayer books or their liturgies, he says that Jesus has come as a light to lighten the Gentiles and to redeem thy people Israel, uh, which I think is a fascinating phrase, especially in the in this season of Advent. We're talking about the darkness that we live in and the light stepping into it in Christ. That's exactly what Christ has done. He has brought light into our existence. He has lightened us. And so I think that that's all part of what the incarnation means and some of the implications there. You talked about how the incarnation is sometimes overshadowed by the cross because obviously the cross is huge and profoundly significant yeah, and, it and, should there, be. and there's no salvation uh, apart from not just the death, but the resurrection and not just the resurrection, but the ascension of Christ. Yeah. How yeah. do you think the incarnation helps us see the cross better? Like what changes in, in our view of the cross when we really understand the doctrine of the incarnation? Yeah. So here's where it's helpful. I think the, uh, the Heidelberg catechism is really helpful on this point. It's questions 15 through 17, if I remember correctly, where it's talking about uh, what kind of mediator do we need? Could God himself just come down and not take on human form and just be God and then die for our sin? Well, no, it needed to be a fully human mediator, but also needed to be fully God in order to pay for our sin and survive it all. Uh, So that's why the resurrection happens in Christ, because he's also divine. So he, he dies in his human nature, but it is raised also. But the, the important point there is that Jesus had to become fully human in order to pay for human sin and to redeem human nature, to bring uh, his divine life into human nature. And this is the only way in which our union with Christ, which is the best way I think of conceiving of salvation as a whole, Jesus had to unite himself to us, to redeem us. He had to become one of us 
to pull us out of our creaturely place in darkness. And so he had to become fully human to die on that cross. Uh, he had to know what that meant and he had to live it out. This is why it's so important. When we, we talked earlier about the some of the heresies in the early church, when people were trying to figure out how to talk about the incarnation and people fell off on either side where Jesus only seemed human, but wasn't really human or he only yeah. Yeah. He was mostly human, but his mind was divine or, or some other aspect. Like of he's it. an avatar where he's just kind of like the divine mind and soul, but there's the human host body where he's like divinity is like a parasite that has taken control of the body and now uses the body for its own, its own purposes. And that's not a good way of thinking of it. He had, he was fully human and fully divine. Right. He's, he's both. He's truly human. He's truly divine. And that humanity is not like a facade. He's, he's taken on everything that is proper to our human nature, including yeah, the ability exactly. to die, which is yes. what the cross is. Yeah. And you need that. And so that's where I think we can maybe hone in on here in our talk real quickly. What is the gospel? Hmm. Well, yes, Jesus died for you. But I love how in the Heidelberg Catechism, when it asks, what, are, what must you believe to be saved? It says that you must believe the articles of the gospel. Then it says, well, what are the articles of the gospel? Good question. Quote, it quotes the Apostles' Creed. And so actually in my interview about a year and a half ago where, at my church that I'm now serving at, uh, they asked me at the end of the interview, Zach, what's the gospel? And I quoted the Apostles' Creed and saying, all of this contains what is crucial to the gospel story. It contains what has happened. and and what has been done by God, but it also introduces us to who God is. And so I would say the gospel, maybe in a nutshell, is the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and session, and return of Christ. And that we now, through all of those movements of incarnation, death, resurrection, and so on, we are united with Christ in, in all of those movements. He unites himself to us in incarnation. We die with him in his death. We are raised with him and ascended with him, which is why Ephesians 2 talks about us being seated in the heavenly places with him currently, right now. And he will come again, which is also good news. We look forward to Christ coming back. That's, that's all part and parcel of the gospel, not just the death part um, where he removes the guilt and pays the penalty of our sin. Uh, I, I just preached on Isaiah 53 this last Sunday, and I got to talk very clearly about penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus pays the price for us. I, I, I've read arguments against that, you know, but then there's, of course, the, all the stuff about uh, divine child abuse coming out from, I guess, more progressive voices in the evangelical and Protestant world, um, and even Catholic, some Catholics, Richard Rohr would be one of them. Sure. Would deny... Uh, penal substitutionary atonement. But I can't get over that hump when you read Isaiah 53, 5, and 6, where it talks about him being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It's quite clear that there's some sort of uh, interaction or interchange happening there that God is in Christ is paying for our sin that we could not pay for ourselves. So we, we've talked kind of big theology about this, mm -hmm. but I'd be curious if you could kind of just hone in on your own life, I know you've thought about this a lot. We've talked a lot about the importance of the incarnation and why we as Christians need to think more carefully about it. What difference does this make for us in our daily life when we really grasp that God, the son became man for us and for our salvation? How, how do we live differently in light of that? So that's a huge question. And I feel like that's something that I'm 
still constantly learning for myself and experiencing in, in my studies and in my, my prayer life and so on. I, I wrote out a bunch of these sort of in preparation for this. And the one that really sticks out to me is that God has come near to us in Christ. And so this would make me think of passages in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, uh, where in becoming fully man, just like us, yet without any sin, Jesus can sympathize with us. He knows what it's like to live in our lowly existence. He knows the, the mundane things of being a human. He knows what the everyday pain feels like. He knows what, what sadness and depression feels like. He knows he's not far removed. I think in comparing to other world religions, that's, that's a huge point that God has come down and doesn't just know what it feels like to be human theoretically, but he knows experientially. And so God has come near. And, if, and that's what we talk about when we talk about Emmanuel, God with us. God is not just over us, but God is with us. He has stepped in. And I think about a few years ago when my dad died, uh, I was in uh, my it was between my first and second semesters of seminary, actually. And I get a phone call one night out of the blue, my dad died. It was something similar to a heart attack. And my roommate stepped into my room while I was packing and crying and praying, but I was angry and sad and confused and dazed all at the same time. I didn't really know how to feel. And my roommate stepped into my room, sat down on the ground, put his head between his legs, and I felt like he was carrying the burden of that moment with me. Hmm. He didn't say a word, but he was with me. And there's something very pastoral about that. There's, there's a lot more that can be said. Another thing that the incarnation has really helped me see is that matter matters, that my human form is not something to, be, to get rid of or to advance beyond, uh, but my, that my body is important and how I treat my body is important because Christ has come in one. I think we need to treat our bodies with, with respect. And I think this has also helped me see how using my body in worship is important. So standing, sitting, kneeling, I don't know, whatever you, whatever you do. Uh, I, I love when in my church, when we give the blessing and the benediction at the beginning and at the end of our services. So the pastor who's giving it raises his hands and the congregation extends their hands as if to receive the blessing from God. There's embodied worship, which I think is is really, really cool and really powerful. Christianity so often becomes it becomes a mind game, especially in the reformed world. It's something that it's either we we relegate Christianity to the sphere of the mind or we relegate it to the sphere of the affections. But Christianity is also something to be embodied, to be lived out, that we do with our bodies, not just with our minds and not just with our affections. What you do with your body matters, which of course makes a lot of sense when you're looking at the, the New Testament. First Corinthians comes to mind. He talks about sleeping with prostitutes. How could we do that? If we are owned by Christ, we are part of his body. How could we can, like, unite ourselves with prostitutes and so on? It really starts to make sense of the whole picture from the New Testament about how our spirituality is not just heart or mind, it's also our, our body. You mentioned one thing that I would love to just circle back to that, that God has drawn near to us in the incarnation. And that to me is 
is very different from what most people think about when they, when they think about getting closer to God. They normally think that that requires them to do a lot of things and, and follow a lot of rules and keep a lot of spiritual disciplines, which is I, I certainly think there's a, a good and right place for the spiritual disciplines. But I think the only ground on which those can stand is this first and foremost sort of prolegomena recognition that God doesn't expect us to draw near to him first. He expects us to do that because he's already drawn near to us, the incarnation. Yeah, it, it accords, the incarnation accords well with the rest of the scriptural evidence on, on God's initiation and everything. God always is the first mover when it comes to salvation. God's always the one, the, the one taking the initiative, but also accomplishing things. There's a old uh, song from Shylin, the Christian rapper, it's actually a song called election. That's the, the big point of the song is predestination, but he uses this really uh, beautiful analogy where he says, some people think that we're uh, drowning in the ocean when somebody has to throw us the life raft and we have to by faith, reach out and grab it. He says, no, without apology, I deny that analogy reality. We were dead at the bottom of the sea. I was a swollen corpse with hope no more until Jehovah the Lord dove to the ocean floor. I was a corpse and I smelt like it. Why did God choose me? because he felt like it. He talks, so it paints this Im- imagery of us just being dead in our sin and God coming all the way down and picking us up and raising us all the way back up and breathing life into our, into our lungs. And I think that's part of what the incarnation is. God's moving into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson put it. Yeah, and from Christ's now incarnate human and divine life where he sits enthroned and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, Somehow there's a human up there still in our place, interceding for us on behalf of us, bestowing continuously forever, eternally, his divine life unto us. I think that's where uh, John 6 becomes really, really important and powerful. Some people will want to read Jesus saying, whoever drinks my blood and eats my flesh, uh, only, only that sort of person will have, will have life. And if you don't drink my blood and eat my flesh, then you, you won't have life. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people will see that as just believing in the gospel. I think that's part of what he's saying. But I think there is something really important about the language he's, that he's using there, about how feeding on him, and he uses it in the most bodily of terms. He could have painted a more bodily picture there. Feeding and, and drinking him, consuming Jesus only as he exists in, in flesh and blood is the way to life. And he mediates and gives and grants that life to us today. And that doesn't happen apart from his incarnation. That only happens through the incarnation. So this is something I've been thinking about. <laughs> well, and, and I guess the, the great thing to kind of conclude on as well is when you read the, the language of, of John 14, which is kind of the classic text on the incarnation, it is not a one-time event, but it is a, a continuous and ongoing event. Jesus has, the word has taken on flesh, never to be separated from it again. Jesus, and yeah. in his return, returns as truly God and truly man, even in the new heavens and the new earth, continues to be truly God and truly man. Amen. Which means something for us that yeah. that we, as by the Spirit, have been united to Christ, never to be separated, just as, as human yeah. nature has been united to the word, never to be separated from it. Exactly. I think there's assurance that comes from the incarnation as well. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource from the College of Career Ministry of Baylife Church. Our goal is to equip our community to follow Christ faithfully and think carefully about the harder issues in the Christian faith. If you found this podcast helpful, please leave a review and subscribe. For College of Career Ministry, I'm Corey, and this is The Stone Table. Is that the nice. ho 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 shirt? It is, dude. I had to wear it. Even though I know it's not going to be a video, it's just going to oh be. Oh my out. gosh, that's so cool. I, love that. <laughs> um, I was like, it's only fitting that I sit here smoking my pipe and I think have so. Clean with me. I love that, man.